All right. Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Titus uh, chapter 2 in the New Testament. And as you find your place in Titus chapter 2, I'll point out, if you saw in that video, a couple of our staff members are uh, part of life group leadership. And this just goes to show you that uh, life groups aren't just something we want you to be a part of. They're something that we think uh, are important for us as well. And so, uh, again, I would encourage you, if you haven't already found a group, uh, to please reach out to us. Stop by one of the welcome tables uh, on your way out and ask more information about our life groups. There's a list of all of our life groups on our website. We would love you to get plugged in with a group of people uh, where you belong. All right, I am going to read all of Titus chapter two as that is our text this morning. Titus chapter two, beginning in verse one says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Prior to coming uh, to church on Bayshore, I was the pastor of Mosaic Church in Crestview. It was a church that uh, I planted when I was 25 years old, and Christy and I served there for almost 10 years. Um, over that 10-year period, we saw uh, what we set out to do happen. We were planted with the support of several other churches, Baptist churches in Crestview, to reach young, unchurched military families. And we saw people come from a de-churched or really no church background uh, to come to faith in Christ. And we would see that happen uh, a lot every year. And it was incredible to see these stories of really people who came from no knowledge really of the gospel or of the word and see the radical transformation that happened in their lives. And with that, we saw a great community form. A lot of the people who were part of our church were not um, from the area and didn't have really uh, strong faith backgrounds. And so there was really a sense of community. This is my family. Um, and really, in, especially because they were in their 20s and 30s primarily. And then there was a high level of commitment of those who became members of the church. It was a high percentage uh, that served and, and gave and were really committed to the life of the church. And so there was a lot of kingdom fruit. But at the same time, we would often have leaders who would go off the rails. Somebody who had become serious about Jesus, uh, who we would put in leadership because we needed leaders 
and they would go off the rails and they would take people with them. At the same time, we saw just a lack of maturity about how a lot of things were handled consistently, and there was just a general lack of wisdom on how to make decisions and how to move forward with certain relational issues. And so because of that, I have this heightened awareness of the need for the church to be intergenerational. Next week, I'm excited that uh, our student minister, Alec, uh, is going to close out our series. So we're having someone a good bit younger than me in this intergenerational series, closing out the series. And so today, I kind of wrap up my portion of this series. And as I think about it, I think about my experience there. And I think about this church that does have all generations represented very healthily right now and the need for us to be intergenerational. And so as we reflect on Titus 2, I wanna talk about 10 things uh, that are relevant to the older men and older women teaching the younger men and younger women. Y'all know it usually takes me a long time to get through two to three things, so we gotta get moving. Before I do get moving, let me read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse one and two. Paul says to Timothy, another young pastor who he's investing in, he says, do not rebuke an older man But encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And it is my hope to speak to older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters. Now before Paul gets into the intergenerational dynamics here, notice that his instruction starts in verse 1 with, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What accords means what is fitting or what is consistent. Sound means healthy, and doctrine means teaching or instruction. So Paul is saying, teach what is consistent with healthy instruction. He's saying this after chapter one when he talks about the fact that we need men who look over and lead the church because of the problem of false doctrine that can infiltrate the church. And Paul is saying that What's happening in the church needs to be consistent with healthy doctrine. Today, there's an epidemic in American Christianity of churches that de-emphasize doctrine. That think, hey, as long as we're growing, as long as we're reaching people, as long as people are getting saved, it doesn't really matter. But this is very similar to someone who would work out and exercise, but eat very poorly. It's very unhealthy, and ultimately, it causes problems. Last week, I drew some beautiful pictures for you, and um, we're going to put one of those up again. And um, we talked about how Jesus has called the church to make disciples. So that's the target. That's where we're aiming for. And in that, there's other goals that the church might have of growth, which is fine, and people finding friends and community, which is fine and good, and doing missions, which is fine and good. But we cannot forget the ultimate target is making disciples. And if we stop short at growth or friendship or doing missions without making disciples, and when Jesus gives us the great commission to make disciples, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so if we're making disciples, if we're doing what God has called the church to do, then we are teaching people what Jesus taught. And Jesus affirmed the Old Testament, and so we're teaching how he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the relevance of the Old Testament to their life as well. 
And what has happened in a lot of churches that de-emphasize doctrine is a great falling away, a great deconstruction, a great decline from the church, and a great decline in, in Christianity. Because, and this is point number one, what we believe determines how we behave. What we believe determines how we behave. And so when we're thinking about how we wanna make disciples, we have to understand that at the core of that, at the center of that, is sound teaching, is sound doctrine. And so the rest of Paul's instructions flow out of and are centered around that. And he starts by instructing Titus in how to teach the older men. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, when Paul uses the word older here in chapter two, he's using a Greek word, presbytos, which is not the same Greek word, presbyteros, which is translated as elder in chapter one, which is an office he gave instructions for there. So he's talking about older men here. At their, in their day, the average life expectancy was probably 35 to 45, maybe 50 years if you were lucky. So he's talking to men who are in their mid-30s because they were grandpas at that time. The applicable group here today is probably people who have teenagers and older. And he says this group should be sober-minded. P.J. Budd says that means complete clarity of mind and it's resulting good judgment. You see, you will encounter people who are drunk, drunk perhaps off of alcohol or drugs, but you also encounter people who are drunk off of money and the desire to have money and the desire to be successful. You encounter people who are intoxicated by their lust for sex, among many other things. And Paul was saying that the men of the church, the men of God, should be influenced by God. They should not be intoxicated by any of these other things of the world. They should be sober-minded. And we know that we are being influenced most by God, that we are thinking with God as the first and foremost thing in our life when we are in the Word. And so to remain sober-minded, we must be men of the Word. He also says these men are to be dignified, which when I hear that word, I think of somebody who's got a cummerbund and a bow tie and you know, walks like this. I don't think they had that back then, so that's not what he's talking about. He's saying these are to be men who are not frivolous. There's not an inappropriate silliness to them. Now, he's not saying be a prude. He's saying these are men who are serious. They're serious about the urgency of life. They're not men who are in a spiritual battle for the souls of their children and their grandchildren and the men around them who act like we're just in a time of peace. I think a great imagery is an athlete who enjoys the sport and has fun and is a great teammate, but is focused on doing their best to win. I think we have a lot of great examples of this in this church. He also says these men are to be self-controlled. Now, you're gonna see this explicitly or implied in all people. Five times, actually, this phrase is mentioned in this chapter. He's saying these men, they do not sacrifice what's important for what's immediate. They do not give in to immediate feelings at the neglect of what is important for their future. He said they're to be sound in faith or healthy in faith. These men are convinced that God can be trusted. They have had faith over the years. And they can tell the stories. Now, if you know older men, sometimes they repeat their stories a lot. But they have them to tell. They're sound in love. 
The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These men are moving more and more away from being concerned with their needs and more and more towards God and others. They are convinced that this is the way to live. He says they are to be sound in steadfastness. Now, this is Paul who's famous for saying faith, hope, and love are the greatest of things. Here he uses faith, steadfastness, and love for older men. You see, what steadfastness is, what perseverance is, is its hope played out. It's that they have hope, and that hope has continually been assured. And so they're persevering in hope. My second point today is this. Daniel Aiken says, Older men should have the discernment, discretion, and judgment that comes from walking with God for many years. Older men should have the discernment, discretion, and judgment that comes from walking with God for many years. We need older men who have walked through peaks and valleys and still proclaim, our God is faithful. Now, I want you to know, you can be mature or old and not godly. I often hear people when they're giving advice and talking about their life, they say, that was just the road I had to go down. No, sir, that was the road you chose to go down. And why don't you help us learn not how to go down that road? You see, the grace of God may have covered your life, but let's admit the things that we did wrong and the way the grace of God has intervened in our life. Let's share our mistakes. Let's recognize when we trusted God and when we did not. And let's Pass that on to the next generation. Now, with life expectancy increasing, I think that a lot of older men start to cruise and lay back in the later years of their life. Now, if you're gonna get to the point where you don't have to work, that is good for you. And that's fine. But we never retire from Christ. We never retire from making disciples. We never retire from advancing the gospel. We never retire from building up the body. One of the men who were a little bit older that were part of Mosaic once said, when you retire, you get new tires. You're retreaded for a new terrain in your life, but you continue on with the mission of God. The psalmist says in Psalm 71, verse 18, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. May that be the cry of the older men of our church that God would use them to proclaim his might to another generation and power to those who come. Now, the typical view of retirement shows things to be our treasure that are not Christ. In his booklet, Rethinking Retirement, John Piper says, finishing life to the glory of Christ means finishing life in a way that makes Christ look glorious to others. It means living and dying in a way that shows Christ to be the all-satisfying treasure that he is. My third point this morning is this. Our retirement should indicate that there is a heaven beyond the grave. Our retirement should indicate that there is a heaven beyond the grave. Because a lot of people approach retirement, even believers, as if I've got to get heaven in before I have to go be with God. I've got to get my indulgence in before I have to go be with God. And at no real consideration of the life that God has called them to live. And we buy into this mentality, it's entitlement, I've earned it, I deserve it. But what a strange reward it is for a Christian to set their sights on 20 years of leisure while living in the midst of millions of people 
who need Christ. How sad is it to finish the last mile before entering the presence of the king who finished his last mile so differently. And this is true for older men and older women, which Paul moves on to next in verse three. Older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. When Paul uses the word reverent, it's from a word for worship, which means someone who's dedicated to holiness. And they would think of a priestess when they heard that word, but a priestess wasn't a biblical concept. And yet he says she's to be reverent. She's to be a priestess. This means she's to be set apart for God's service. And he says this in her behavior, in the way she lives. So not in a temple position, but in her life, she's to be a priestess. You see, a woman who is reverent in behavior is working to build up the body, the temple of God, to advance the name of Christ. A mature woman in Christ has encountered the holiness of God and her sin and has responded with a life of service to him. She's entered into a season where she has raised her children and so she can dedicate more of herself to the purposes of God. This will cover the following things that are evidence of worldly women, but what godly women should not be. He says, and not slanderers. The Greek word for slanderer is diablos, which is the word we get our English word devil for. Slandering, that is the tearing down of someone, does the work of Satan. It is against God. Their audience would hear, don't be a hater of God with your mouth. Paul is saying that she is to be a woman who has control of her tongue and uses it not to tear others down, but to build others up. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 29, Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, lying making false accusations, spreading gossip, goes against the word of God. I like to study in coffee shops because I like coffee um, and because I can't sit in my office all day uh, while I'm studying. I need a change of scenery. And so I'll go there for a few hours. And I often, and we're talking about women right now, so I'm gonna pick on women, um, we'll hear a group of older women sitting around having their coffee. And it really sounds like an episode of The View is what it sounds like. Um, And if you like The View, I'm sorry, but you really should not like The View. Um, And so, you know, they're worldly. Maybe it's over wine instead of coffee, whatever it is. These groups of women, they get together and they just talk about all these people. That is what it is. But what really breaks my heart is that sometimes Bible studies are like an episode of The View. And this destroys friendships. And it destroys families. And it destroys churches. It is the work of Satan, Paul says. I cannot express enough for you to stop it. And you need to ask yourself, is what I'm going to say build the church up? Does it help the person listening? If not, maybe I shouldn't say it. I once heard a famous uh, female speaker say, be the place that gossip goes to die. My fourth point this morning is this. Someone who is mature in Christ understands the power of her words and uses them to build God's church, not destroy it. 
Someone who is mature in Christ understands the power of her words and uses them to build God's church, not destroy it. He says they're not to be slaves to much wine. What was happening in Titus's day is women were reaching a grandma a stage of life, so like 32, and uh, they were just, hey, we're, we've raised our kids. We're gonna sit around and drink wine, and uh, gossip was going with it here. And, and, and Paul says, don't be a slave to much wine. Now, I know in our culture, we're in the South, so Southern Baptists and Southern Pentecostals, we've placed an overemphasis on the problems of alcohol. Like, I really do believe that some people think they can go into Applebee's, they can treat their server however they want, they can tip poorly, but if they drank sweet tea instead of beer and leave a track, people will get saved because of what they saw. And that's funny, but it's also not. So I'm not saying that you can't have alcohol. In fact, Paul is not saying that. He instructs Timothy to have wine. But I am saying that there are problems with alcohol and being dependent on alcohol is a problem. Being dependent on something to maintain the mood that you need is a problem. So I've seen on coffee mugs and on t-shirts this saying. Uh, You guys can put the image up. All I need is a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. By the way, I love coffee. I drink coffee all the time. But this is problematic. Because what this is saying, and I know you're probably saying it in good humor and innocent or whatever, but what you're communicating is, I need a whole lot of Jesus, but also... I need wine, or I need coffee, or I need whatever it may be. Now, I'm not saying, you know, go the other way and try to make everything really churchy and spiritual like this one I've seen, coffee, Christ, I can't read it back there, Christ offers forgiveness for everyone everywhere. You're just churching up drinking coffee, all right, come on. (laughs) But here's what I'm saying. There is great deception in the words, I need this, when this is anything besides Jesus. One commentator says these women had gotten to the point in their life where they had earned this, they had deserved it, they had raised families, their families were gone, and they were finally like, yes, a little me time. And here they are in the time of their life that is most freed up to serve God and invest in the lives of younger families, and what do they focus on? Now, the truth is, in a culture where there's affluence, a lot of women get to this point before their kids are even out of preschool. And they think, oh, I just, I just, it, me, me, me. And I'm not saying not to take care of yourself, but I think we live in an overindulgent time where it's always, almost always about me. And, and there's this responsibility here on older women to teach what is good. Their, their life should be devoted to that. That's an original term in the Greek, kolodos kaskalos, which sounds like the title of an outcast song. Uh, tell me you're from the 90s without telling me you're from the 90s. And it's saying if you're an older, even more mature woman, you probably see a mom who's too harsh and frustrated with her children or a younger wife who nags and whines or a younger woman who is materialistic or an unmarried woman who thinks she can change the guy she is dating. And you see these problems, teach them. Teach them what is good. That should be characteristic Of you, you teach these women when you see these things. And he says, and be intentional. Train the young women. Bring them to their senses or make of sound mind is what this is saying. It's a word that is in contrast to the word slander. He's saying, don't talk about all the problems with younger women. Help them. People typically don't just 
get it. They need your example and they need your instruction. And this is not formal instruction. You don't have to be a good teacher to teach what is good. Women's ministry is about women's relationships. And so we have some programs we're doing as a church for women's ministry, but programs are not what make disciples. People are what make disciples. And so women just need relationships where they can model and teach what it means to be a godly woman. And I want you to notice that this teaching the younger women, which we're moving on to now, is not the responsibility of Titus. It's the responsibility of the older women. And this is good because younger women scare me. And so it is not my responsibility to primarily teach the younger women. Paul is telling Titus, teach the older women to teach the younger women. I almost thought about today, because some of the things I'm going to say to younger women, to have my wife and to have like Robin Nelson, who's, you know, like a mama to me, just standing beside me going, "Mm mm-hmm, so you wouldn't be mad at just me. So I need y'all older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands and children. This is the only place in Scripture that women are commanded to love their husbands. It's laced throughout Scripture. Loving your husbands and loving your children is more than just showing affection. It's intention in cultivating a godly life in both of them. And so I would ask you of your husband and your children, is your greatest joy in their life their relationship with Christ? That should be what it all revolves around. You should love them to that and help them to flourish in that. He also says for younger women to be self-controlled. I explained this when talking about older women. Sacrifice the immediate feeling for the important truth. Do not constantly give in to your feelings, but trust the word of the Lord. He says they're to be pure. You see, where older women were set apart, this is the process of making yourself set apart. It's a less mature version of what he was talking about when he was talking about the women who are reverent. He's saying this is putting aside worldly desires. It's the fleshing out, the living out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, which says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I would recommend caring a little bit about your external appearance, but the emphasis here is on who you are on the inside, pure, letting God's beauty shine through you. He says that they're to be working at home. This phrase here is one word that is only used here in the New Testament, and it's, it's the idea of guarding the home. That a woman's first priority is the peace and protection and care of her home. She can't be lazy then. She can't be a busybody then. Now, some of the tension here is that homes were simpler back then, and so your home doesn't have to look like a magazine. That's fine if it does, but that's the responsibility to do that is not coming from God. He's saying care for your home, bring peace in your home, eliminate the chaos in your home, make your home a safe place for your children and for strangers. I know that today when we think about working at home, there's a lot of nuances. A lot of women in this room watching online this morning are working I'm not gonna speak to all that nuance, all those nuances, but here's what I'll say is very clear. Your home is your first priority. And so I'm not gonna speak into whether you should take this job or do this job or be gone this much. 
You cannot neglect the peace and protection of your home. It's something that God has called you to in his word for thousands of years. That transcends what culture might say right now. He also says these young women are to be kind, which means they're to be pleasant, to be like Christ, to be gracious, to be merciful, to be considerate, to treat others better than they treat her, not constantly bringing your drama to every relationship, but to be kind to people, to think about them, to be considerate of them. And he says submissive to their own husbands. Now, submission is more of an attitude than an action, but it certainly leads to action. I will say that obedient in the King James Version is not the best word to use. Submissive is a military term, however, so it means submission to the role, to the rank of husband. Women are, I I need to say this too, women are to be submissive to their husbands, not all men. The Bible does not say be submissive to all men. It says be submissive to your husband. And this isn't about inferiority or inequality. Galatians 3.28 sets that straight. But it is about the different roles that men and women have. And I know our culture says that's not true, but I trust the word of God that has helped thousands of people over different contexts for thousands of years. Sorry, millions of people, billions of people over what culture might say like tomorrow and change to next year. God has made men and women distinct. And when women have this mentality of being who God has called them to be, look what Paul says. The word of God may not be reviled. When they live this way, in a day when the word of God is constantly assaulted by popular trends and pop psychology and whatever it may be, a woman who lives this way exalts the scripture. She shows it to be sufficient. She lives a life that doesn't say I am enough, but a life that says God is enough. The fifth thing I'll say this morning is women who submit to God in all things show the scripture to be sufficient. Women who submit to God in all things show the scripture to be sufficient. All right, last but not least, the younger men. Paul says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. This is summon, charge the younger men. He's saying give this like emotionally inspiring urge to younger men. Because it's funny how many manly men are actually more motivated by their feelings than they would lead you to believe. And he says urge them to be self-controlled. And again, we've talked about not sacrificing the important for the immediate. And I would just say already in my life, I have seen men who were not self-controlled who ruined their career and who ruined a ministry and who ruined their marriage and who ruined their home. And so there is a seriousness about this that has grown in me when I begin to see signs of a lack of self-control because of the destruction that I have seen it cause. And this is really the only instruction Paul gives to Titus to give to younger men because I believe Titus himself is a younger man. And Paul focuses then on Titus's example to younger men. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. The word model there is a Greek word typos, which is where we get our word type. He's saying you should be an example. That's how you influence other young men. Because, you know, younger men, we size each other up. And when someone sizes you up and they see someone who not only talks about faith, but who lives it out, it does something in them. It inspires them. 
if they're open to follow God. He says, show yourself to be, in all respects, to be a model of good works. In everything, to be a model of good works. Don't compartmentalize God. For a lot of men, it's like God's, they have you know, church self and God self, then they have married self, and then they have job self, and then they have you know, fun self. And so it's kind of like, these, they're like these different people, or they try to be these different people. He's saying, in all respects, in everything you do, show people how big God is. He says, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. You might say, well, I'm not a teacher. Yes, you are. You teach your children. You teach those who work around you, live around you. You teach non-believers who might only see you as an example of Christ. He says, show integrity. That's an accurate representation of who God is, the wholeness of who God is with how you teach and how you live your life. Don't twist it for any selfish motivation, but exalt the scripture above your own desires. And dignity, which means respect, it's, it's tied to the idea of majesty. He says, there should be a respect for God that is conveyed to others in the way you live your life and the things that you say. And I, I think this is one of the things that is missing from Christianity today. I, I, it's evidence in what a lot of people say to me when they're going through a difficult time or when they have issues with just how things are. I've had several people say something to the effect and when they're going through a difficult time or things didn't work out the way they wanted, they would say, if, I, if God were right here, I would have a few questions for him. Or if God were right here, I would just wanna say to him, and I get where that's coming from, but let me be clear about something. If God showed up right here, you would bow down before him. When you see him and his holiness and his glory, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the kind of God that we need to help people see the God of the Bible is. We must be serious about that. He also says, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I'll just say this. He's saying, you must know the word and you must be able to talk about it confidently. We got a lot of people who've been Christians since they were kids that just don't know the Bible and that just doesn't make sense. And so he says, if you know why you believe what you believe, and you convey it in you know, a way that cannot be condemned, then they might reject Jesus, but it's not gonna be because of you. See, people have a lot of reasons, illegitimate issues with Christians don't give them a legitimate issue with Christians. Your life, he's saying, should be an embodiment of Romans chapter 12, which says, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your lives, your bodies, as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable God, which is your, your spiritual act of worship. And he says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what is God's will, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's how we live our lives. This big God who is guiding everything we do. So my sixth point this morning is this. A God who fits into one compartment of a man's life does not make very much of a God and in turn does not make him into very much of a man. 
A God who fits into one compartment of a man's life does not make very much of a God and in turn does not make him into very much of a man. And I just wanna pause here and say, this might be the issue, man. This might be the issue. And today I invite you in awareness of who God is to bow down, to bow down before him. And like Isaiah, to recognize you are so unworthy of the presence of God and to submit to him as Lord. Now, young people, I guess that's anybody my age or younger. If you're older than me, you're old. Notice what is missing from this list so far. It's gifts and talents. Paul doesn't say, hey, you know that guy that's really good at sports? Try to be like him. He doesn't say, hey, you know that guy that's intelligent and a career guy? Try to be like him. He doesn't say, hey, you know that woman who's really good at music or able to create a good social media presence? Be like her. Now, there's nothing wrong with growing in these skills, but Paul is saying what matters most is character. If you study kind of church life, church world at all, then you probably are aware that we have had a ton of mega churches that have a lot of influence that have come crashing down. Leaders and churches, whole movements come crashing down. The rise and fall of Mars Hill, Hillsong Church, many churches in leadership amongst the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm telling you, this is connected to the elevation of talents and gifts over the character of God. But in fact, what Paul is saying here is he's saying the character of God is what matters, not skill and talent. And he addresses one more group that I think is just important to drive that point home. He says in verse nine, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, this doesn't mean that God condones slavery. It means that God was speaking to the slaves who were present, the bondservants who were present, gathered as a church, which is a, a whole paradigm shift that the church would even incorporate bondservants in this society into the church. And he's encouraging them to be Christ-likeness, even in a position of maybe injustice or a position that they've brought themselves into, but yet there's really no earthly hope to get out. And he says to everybody who's listening, Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is our great hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us so that we would be his possession. We are Jesus's people. We are Jesus' people. And the design here is that this flourishes best when older men and older women are teaching younger men and younger women. My last four points here are quick things that I think for help, are helpful for us as we move forward. Because what's easier is to follow the pattern of many multi-generational churches 
put the old people over here and the not quite as old people over here and the young people here and the even younger people over here. And it's tough because we've gotten older. Paul Irving in his book, The Upside of Aging, says the average life expectancy has gone from 49 to 79 in just over a century. The birth rate has also decreased, meaning by the time the last baby boomer turns 65 in 2029, one in five Americans will be age 65 or older. A church that once reflected its community consisted of three generations, and that same church today will consist of five generations if it is engaging all in its community. And the value here that this older group offers to society is appreciated less and less by generations who are farther apart in the number of years and who are farther apart because of the radical pace at which society advances in technology and worldview and morality. But, point seven, the last thing the church should be doing is asking older people to go away to make room for the next generation. The last thing the church should be doing is asking older people to go away, to sit over here and give and make room for the next generation. The older generation needs to engage the younger generation and teach them biblical values and practical lessons. This is challenging because congregation members who are above the age of 65 live in a drastically different America than they did when they were in their 20s and they're often ignorant to or confused by the mindset shifts that have taken place. There's a huge difference in younger people if you're older but investing in them is the priority. And there might be some issues with the younger generation in our culture and in the church that you see, and I'm not telling you it's your fault, but I am telling you it's your responsibility. We have opened up our home to children that are not biologically ours, and there are some issues that they have to work through that are not my fault. But it is my responsibility. The the culture Christian, as long as we're on earth, is our responsibility. And so we need to engage. And, and what, how this flourishes best is when older or younger are partnering together. And so if you're older, this is point A, you need to let the young people speak and listen to them. In the book of Job, Job's going through a lot, and his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, which I'm glad my parents didn't name me. Uh, those are not names you want to be. Well, actually, if some celebrity names their kid, Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar, then it'll become popular. But another guy with a better name, Elihu, comes by, and they don't want to hear him speak because he's younger than them. And here's what he says, Job 32, 8 and 9. It is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. It's the people who love the word, whose God's spirit speaks the word through. And the warning here, John Piper says this, is that as we grow older, we must never assume that the ideas we have held the longest are the truest. As we grow older, we must never assume the ideas we have held the longest are the truest. I will tell you this, our church, I constantly have people twice twice my age telling me God speaks to me, to them through me. And that has a lot less to do with my ability and a lot more to do with their humility. That they are in their 80s and they are still learning and listening to the Lord. And that should be our mentality. And we should be doing this because we understand the mission that God has given us. We have some relatively young pastors now, but I think about Pastor Chuck who retired and is now serving at Anchor Church, our church plant that we're trying to get off the ground. Pastor Mike, who you heard prayed last week, and Pastor Dennis Brown, who passed away Uh, shortly before I came here. 
They did not just want to finish well. They wanted to ensure that the next generation carried the legacy of the gospel in this church. And we need to understand, point nine, we do not only finish the race, we pass the baton. We're not running a 100-yard dash. We're in a relay race. And the baton has to be handed off to the next generation. And I believe we do have men and women here who wanna do this. And we must understand the importance of this. And if you haven't heard anything I say over the last 45 minutes or over the last five weeks, hear this as a warning and encouragement. Point 10, when older, wiser people lack passion for God's will, younger, passionate people go about it unwisely. When younger, excuse me, when older, wiser people lack passion for God's will, younger, passionate people go about it unwisely. We need the passion of younger leaders and the wisdom of older leaders, and we need them working together for the glory of God. Maturity is not caring about your, insisting on your own way. It's caring more about what is important and less about what is not important. It's not control or fighting over power. It's mutual submission to the glory of God. That's the picture that we see in Titus 2 and the picture that allows the church to flourish. I was listening to a talk the other day about leadership in the workplace and they were talking about how companies, bigger companies are really in a crisis because you have kind of the, the boomer generation who they prefer one style of leadership and that's somebody to be like in control and stable and secure. And so they'll plug their life away, even if they don't necessarily like their boss or the business owner, they'll devote 40 years to that same company because of the stability and security. And then they were talking about millennials. Gen X doesn't like anybody to lead them. Then they were talking about millennials and they said millennials really want this collaborative leader, a leader who's their friend, but, but it's causing this problem because, um, you know, some people aren't creating the stability that is needed and then a lot of millennials aren't really loyal. And so these bigger companies are trying to figure out how do we like figure out how we can have leadership teams who are in control, who are stable, who are insecure, but are also very with people and they're trying to learn leadership in a new way. And they said in there, they said, we flourish when things are secure and yet we know that our leader is with us. And I was thinking about kind of the way that religion has been warped. I would say by the older generation, sometimes it's a very dutiful, reverent faith, but God isn't really like near. And then younger, it's like we bring God down to our level, but there isn't this reverence for God. And I was thinking about that thing that said, we flourish when there is someone in control who we know is with us. God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and yet the cross of Christ says, Emmanuel, God with us. That's where we flourish. That's where we get security. That's where we get identity. That's where we get worth. And that is the message that we must give our lives for, church. Pray with me. God, I realize as we talk about your greatness and your nearness today, there are people in this room who they've never bowed down to you. 
And so God, I pray that you would show your holiness to them, your greatness to them, and they would bow down. And they would know because of the cross of Jesus Christ that you are near. That you are in their place on the cross in the wrath of God. And they would walk into that. And then I pray that we as believers who, who believe the gospel, the good news of a great God who has come for us, that we would give our lives for our children, for our community, for those in our church, for the world to see the God that allows us to have identity and worth and purpose and flourish. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.